Do those words not make your heart sore? There is uh, an outline in the announcement sheet that you can use uh, to follow along as we, we go through this text this morning. And as you're doing that, just a reminder, a very quick uh, uh, reminder, that if you've not turned in your, your purpose card, they are still being accepted. If you didn't bring it this morning but know what you'd like to do uh, with that purpose, you can find it at a kiosk out in the family room, fill in that card and, and give it that confidential card to one of the elders. Uh, we are going to be looking at John chapter 3, uh, this week, John chapter 4, next week, and, and thinking about what it means to be a church that helps people be born again, that helps people to understand what the gospel is all about. And part of that is in understanding a lot of that ourselves and to understand uh, the essential nature of it and to understand our part in the, uh, the dissemination of, of the word into our community by our lives and by the very words that we speak. And so I want us to begin uh, this morning in John chapter 3 and with prayer as we get ready to, to press our minds into this text. Our Father, we confess to you that we strive at times to evade your holiness, to arrange our lives as best we can to keep your holiness at bay. We settle for safe and virtuous, and then your word, your spirit, your presence is made unmistakably known and we realize your holiness is not at bay. It is pervasive and probing. It is insistent. It is demanding of us. And so we yield. And so we yield to it. Sometimes sooner, sometimes later. Sometimes resentfully, sometimes gladly. But we yield to you because you are beyond us. And because in your holiness we find our true selves. And as we yield our thoughts to this text and our lives to its inspiration, we pray for eyes and ears that perceive it in order to yield our lives to it each and every day. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all the church said, there's a very famous book. I, I don't know if very many people are, are reading it that much anymore, but some of us are old enough to have remembered it from, uh, from the 70s and the 80s. It's a book entitled Watership Down. It was written by Richard Adams. Uh, how many, by the way, how many of you know this book? Oh, it's a good book. It's, it's well worth a read. It's a book about a warren of rabbits whose homes are destroyed by a bulldozer as a subdivision and, and civilization moves into the wilderness where they have been living all their lives. And there's this little rabbit by the name of Moses who by default becomes the leader of this group of rabbits as they try to find their next place to live in this world that at times is very, very dangerous and a threat to their lives. And the book is really about their travels to that safe place where they find where they find rest and where they, they find uh, their homes being established again. And along the way, they come into a group of rabbits that they have never seen before, the like of which they have never, ever seen in their lives. 
These rabbits are bigger and these rabbits are fatter. Their hair's longer, they're sleeker, they're more muscular, they're more beautiful. They, they, they're giant rabbits. And on top of that, they never seem to have to work very hard to get their food. In fact, they never seem to forage at all. What Moses and his warren of wild rabbits discover is that these rabbits never have to forage for their food at all. Their existence is easy. And part of that is these magic food pellets that arrive in a ceramic bowl every day. And Moses and his wild rabbits decide, you know, this is a pretty good gig. And maybe this is the place where we ought to tie, you know, tie up and come to live with these rabbits and maybe become as, as great as they are. And so they do for a while. And then it dawns on them that every once in a while, the biggest and the fattest of these rabbits disappear. And there's this one rabbit by the name of Old Fuzzy that Moses gets close to that disappears one day, and Moses just can't leave that alone. They disappear, but nobody asks questions. Nobody knows why. Everybody just goes back to eating the pellets and getting bigger. And so Moses, being a curious rabbit, does his investigation and finds a snare, something that looks funny by the fence, and discovers the farmer's snare. And then he discovers how it works. And then he becomes nauseous because he realizes that Old Fuzzy was caught in the snare and Old Fuzzy is in the farmer's stew. And he goes back to his warren and he goes back to the big rabbits and he says, we have got to get away from this place. It is dangerous. We have to, we've got to get away from this place because it's killing us. He's trying to warn the rabbits. He's going to take his wild warren out, but he's trying to get the bigger rabbits to go with him, and they refuse to go. They want to go ahead and, and chew and eat their pellets and not ask any questions and to grow sleek and to grow fat and their hair to grow long and to get muscular and gigantic. And it, they, they're not too worried about disappearing from the snare because they just don't see the need. Our world is a lot like that. Paul, the Apostle Paul, references in 2 Timothy chapter 2, he, de he describes a world where people get caught in Satan's snare. And part of our mission as a church, part of the mission of this particular church in this community on this day, Part of the mission of everyone who calls themselves a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth is to speak to our world about the reality of that snare. And how we do that is to share with them the gospel. We share it through the way that we live the gospel words in our lives, the way that we embody it with kindness and goodness and gentleness and Christ-likeness everywhere that we go. And we do it every time we open our mouths and in the appropriate ways we share the words of the gospel. And, and people come to faith and they decide that they want to give their life to God the Father. And they're born again and God's Spirit comes into them and that's, that's how they escape from that snare. The problem though is that people do not see the need. They don't see the need. In fact, when people hear that word born again, for the most part in our culture, they think of a certain kind of an individual. When you say born again, they think of a certain kind of indiv individual who has to climb out of a train wreck that they have made of their life either emotionally or financially or, or, or spiritually. Or they think about the kind of person that needs to be born again. He needs to be born again because he just can't get past some of the failures in, in his past or her past. 
can't forgive themselves, can't, can't get on with life. They, you know, that's a good way to, to describe sort of, a, sort of starting all over again. When people hear born again, they think of a certain kind of an individual. The, the problem with profiling born again people like that is Nicodemus. That's the guy that we run into in John chapter 3 that Ross just read for us. And what I want us to do this morning is to consider a couple of things about what it means when we think about being born again ourselves and the message that the possibility of being born again and the, the essential nature of being born again, what that all means for us as we go out into this community. So the first thing, who is it that needs it? Everyone. Everyone needs it. In John chapter 3, we're introduced to this fellow by the name of Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is described to us in about four or five different ways by John. First, he says he's a Pharisee, which means that Nicodemus has a strong sense of morality. And he has kind of a strong moral structure by which he lives his life. He's not a guy that's out robbing banks. He's not a guy that's out ruining his reputation with every young woman that'll have him. He, this is a guy that is trying to, to live a very highly moral life. On top of that, we're told that he's a member of the Sanhedrin which means that not only is he a very, very stable, moral individual, but he's a guy that has influence throughout the entire nation. He is well-known. He is famous. He is a leader of the nation. He's an influencer of the nation. He is a guy that people look to in Israel during Jesus' time to make decisions and to lead that nation into the kingdom of God. So he's got that kind of a reputation. But on top of that, we also know that he's Jewish, which means that he has the right kind of DNA. He is a son of Abraham, which implies that he has not just the right spiritual DNA, but he has the right kind of relationship with God. And then on top of that, Jesus refers to him as a teacher of Israel, that this is not just some fellow that has just walked off the street and doesn't know what he's talking about. He's gone through academic training. This is a guy that not only has come to grips with what truth is and defines it for himself, but he helps define what truth is and how it's lived in all of Israel in his day. This is a guy that when something traumatic or dramatic happens in Israel, they all look to a guy like him to define it and to help them get perspective on it. He gives them a paradigm to understand what's going on around them. Now when you think about a guy like Nicodemus, if you think about a guy like Nicodemus in a world like the one we live in, the culture that we live in, one of the things that we might suspect is that he becomes an elitist. That he is somebody that is at the top of his game with all of that achievement. But one of the other things that's sort of implied in the text is the kind of heart that he has. That he's not this elitist. That he's not this guy that patronizes everybody by looking down on them. What we know is that he comes to Jesus who has none of these credentials and he even calls Jesus rabbi, which means that he has sort of a generous spirit about him. And Jesus is completely unpopular with the Pharisees for the most part right now and he's growing unpopular with, with other religious leaders at this time. And, and yet Nicodemus goes to Jesus to have a dialogue with him, which means that that Nicodemus is open-minded enough and not so tethered to the conventional human wisdom that he is surrounded with in the Sanhedrin and, and among his, his own fellow Pharisees that he is able with that open mind to go to Jesus and to say, you know what, let's have a dialogue. I perceive that there might be something godly about you. That nobody could do the kind of miraculous things that you do without him being sent from God. And so when you think about Nicodemus, what, what an admirable fella he is. 
He is as admirable as anyone can imagine being in that culture. He is successful. He is moral. He is kind-hearted. He is open-minded. And to this kind of man, Jesus says, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. No one. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. In other words, start over. New birth means new life. It means new beginning. And one of the things that we see in verse 3 of John chapter 3 as he says, Jesus, the Messiah, the Lord, says this to Nicodemus, is that the gospel is not a, 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 a call to, a, to, a, to go deeper into a, a moral structure. It's not a call for, for mere behavior modification. It's a challenge to that. Nicodemus has the morality. He has that structure. He has the kind of behavior that, that most people in Israel at this period of time, they want to they emulate that. They want to imitate that. They want to be in his shoes. And Jesus says, you know what? Unless you're born again, with all the greatness of your life, unless you're born again, you're not going to see the kingdom of God. Jesus is smashing the patronizing notion that the gospel is for a certain kind of a person. Jesus is, is causing to crumble to the ground our preconception of who it is that really needs the gospel. It's for everyone, not just the lowest person that we could perceive of in our culture, but also for the highest. Why? It's because of what it is. It's a new life. It's a new life. You know, one of the things that most of us do every New Year's Day is we, we want to make New Year's resolutions, right? We decide that we want to eat less or we want to eat better or we want to save more money or we want to spend less or we're going to read the Bible in a year. We come up with all kinds of things that we want to do in order to improve our life. And there's nothing wrong with making these improvements, thinking about your life and analyzing it a little bit and deciding that there are some areas that you could do better so that they're not such liabilities or weaknesses for you to overcome some of these, these struggles. There's nothing wrong with that. But what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus and says to all of us in every age is that the gospel does not improve the existing life that you have. The gospel is about a new birth. The new birth is about a new life. It's not about turning over a new leaf. It's about the implantation of a new life. You know, as a Pharisee, you know, Nicodemus is this highly moral individual. He's, you know, he's spiritually in a sense, charged to live a certain kind of a way. And he realizes that he's not a perfect guy. I mean, the Pharisees prayed for the forgiveness of their sins like everybody else has throughout the, the, the ages. He would not have admitted that he was perfect. And he would gladly have accepted uh, just, just a top-off of, of righteousness, a, a supplement of, of, of righteousness in order just sort of this infusion of righteousness just to sort of top off his righteousness and to kind of get it up there, get the tank full. But Jesus says, you know, that's, that's not it at all. That, in fact, that kind of thinking will not do. Nicodemus, you have to be born again. It doesn't matter how much you enjoy your life, nor how much you have achieved, nor how much money you have in your bank account, 
or how many people recognize you on the street or how much influence that you have in this culture or in this community. You have to be born again. The effect of the gospel is not reformation but transformation. The reformation comes later. I mean, the gospel is about living a Jesus-like life. You're a disciple of Jesus, which means that you follow in the footsteps of Jesus. But it's not just about doing some things different. The gospel is about your life being transformed, which is sort of confusing to Nicodemus because no one has ever spoken to him like this before. And quite frankly, a Jew of Nicodemus' convictions, when they heard the kingdom of God and, and as sort of a serendipity, this is really the only place in John's gospel that the terminology, the kingdom of God, appears. And so when Nicodemus hears this, he probably is thinking of the end of time when God's reign comes to bear upon the earth and upon the hearts of all men as it had in the beginning in the Garden of, of Eden. And because he is a Pharisee and because Pharisees, differently from Sadducees, believe in a resurrection, he would naturally think of the kingdom of God as the resurrection at the end of time, that general resurrection that he would be a part of, that it's an entrance into the kingdom that he's already participating in, but not according to Jesus. Not according to Jesus. He will not get into the kingdom of heaven unless he is born again. And he says, born again. Born again. Tell me, how does a man enter his mother's womb a second time? And in verse 5, Jesus says, Very truly, I tell you that no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. Isn't that amazing that he says that? Don't be surprised. You should not be surprised. Don't be surprised, Nicodemus, at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases. You hear its sound. But you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. You know, when you read that Old Testament canon, you read especially those Old Testament prophets, you find water and spirit linked together in the Old Testament with these future times. And as you know, water was associated with purity and water was associated with, with clean, cleansing. But Joel talked about the Spirit in Acts chapter 2. He's quoted by Peter. Joel looked forward to a time when the Spirit would be poured out on all human beings. And Isaiah and Ezekiel anticipated that when that Spirit came, it would be blessing and it would be righteousness. And Ezekiel said, you know, when that Spirit comes, you know what I see? I see people's hearts being cleansed from their idolatry, meaning that they can connect to God in a special way, and, and their disobedience will be eradicated, that, that it will be about God as their true God in spirit and in truth, and it's about obeying Him and not finding His commandments burdensome in the least. And then you find something incredible when the, the water and the Spirit are put together. Ezekiel chapter 36. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be what? Say it, church. Clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. Man, what a time that would be. 
Can you imagine your heart completely eradicated of every single idol that, that distracts your focus from God Himself? And that your focus is keen and sharp. Verse 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my, what? Spirit in you. And move you. And move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. That's the new birth that I think that Jesus speaks of in John chapter 3. And a year or so after this conversation with Nicodemus, there's this religious holiday known as Pentecost that, that shows up. It's 50 days after Passover when the Messiah has been crucified, has resurrected, has, has ascended into heaven. And as they're all gathered together on Pentecost there around the, the, the temple, the Spirit of God, the way that Joel talked about it, is poured out on all human beings, male and female, young and old. And, and, and these apostles begin to, to, to speak in tongues. And people rush and, 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 and want to know what it's all about. And, and Peter says, what you're seeing is what Joel talked about, that time in which God's Spirit is going to be poured out on all humanity. That is happening in your presence right now. And he preaches and ends up convincing them that the person that they crucified 50 days earlier was really the Messiah. And they, they get it. They understand it. I mean, they are seeing right there in front of them their guilt. They had crucified him. It's not like it happened 50 years ago. It happened 50 days earlier. And they recognized that God's Son had come unto the earth in the flesh, and they had seen Him, and they had heard Him, and some of them had eaten with Him, but some of them had killed Him. And the Bible says that their heart is just completely smashed. It's cut in two. It's broken. And they plead with Peter. They say, what in the world must we do to be saved? And you remember what Peter says. He says, I want you to repent. I want you to repent. Choose God, in other words. Come to your senses, Jesus says in Luke 15 with the parable of the prodigal son. Come to your senses. Choose God. Go to the Father. And be immersed in water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you will receive forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit in you. And you know what happened? 3,000 people were baptized on that day and received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And received the gift of a new heart, a, a forgiven heart, a sins eradicated from God's memory of those people and God's Spirit went into them and as they began to live, they were changed by God's Spirit. They became generous in ways that nobody had ever seen before. They became godly with the way that they spoke to each other and the way that they shared and the kindness and the gentleness and, and all of that became so evident that soon the church of 3,000 became a church of 5,000 men. And 5,000 men became what some scholars consider to be a church of 50,000 people in Jerusalem. The myriads of people representing a, a, a number as vast as 50,000 people. And out of that, they spread throughout the entire world. 
people that, that, were, that, that couldn't speak Hebrew and had never even heard of, of, of the, the Old Testament scriptures were all of a sudden hearing the news about a Messiah that had come, a God who had become flesh and had died for people. People weren't having to die for that God. That God died for them and gave them a new kind of a life. And that new kind of life was not just, you know, you, you do these ten t- kinds of steps and, and then all of a sudden, you, you know, you're there. He's giving them a new life by putting His Spirit inside of them. And everywhere that message went out, rich and poor, old and young, black, white, brown, yellow, green, wherever that word fell on fertile soil, the heart receptive to God, people's lives were changed. And light was going into all of these dark places. People like Nicodemus. People like Nicodemus with with their success and with their morality and their kind-heartedness and their open-mindedness being born again. How do you get it? It comes with with faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus and and Christ alone. I heard a a woman one, one time talk about how... You know, the stages of her conversion, I guess is the best way to describe it. She said, you know, when I was young, I knew that I was somebody. I knew that I was uh, somebody special because I was a good person. You know, I didn't lie to my parents. I didn't steal anything. I was always, you know, kind of obedient to everything. They said I was a good kid. I knew that I was somebody because I was a good person. And then as I got a little bit older and discovered what feelings and affections and love was all about, I realized that I could be somebody because I'm in a relationship. I'm loved and I love somebody. Somebody chooses me. And then somebody came up to me and said, you never want to be somebody special just because somebody says you are. You're somebody special because you have a career. You're contributing to, to the culture. You're, you're, you're doing you know, creative things with your life. You have this career and you're successful. You're somebody then. And then she said, you know what? I found out that that wasn't very fulfilling. And then the next thing I realized, I, I'm, I'm thinking that I'm somebody because I help others. I'm investing my life in other people. And that was pretty empty too. And she says, now I'm somebody because I was born again and now I'm a daughter of God the Father. You know, saving yourself just never works. It never does. It always falls short. You know, that passage that Ross read talks about this serpent being lifted up. That comes from Numbers chapter 21, where uh, people of God are, are following God around, and they're not very happy with God. And they're beginning to, to test God, and, and they're beginning to, to wonder whether or not God really has good intentions for them. And so they begin to grumble. They don't really trust God. They're growing impatient with Him. You know, God's not doing what I want God to do on the timeline that I have for God to do it. And they begin to grumble against God. And God gets furious with them. Why will you not trust me? Why will you not be patient? Why will you not just accept my love and my compassion and my power as it's being wrought in your life? Why will you not accept that? And they just don't. They, They grumble against God. And the next thing you know, God sends these serpents into the camp and the Israelites begin to die from the bites of these venomous snakes and they beg for God to save them because they can't save themselves. And you know what God does? God tells Moses, they're pleading with me, this is how they're going to be saved. Put a, a copy, a model of that bronze snake on a pole and instruct the people when you lift it up to look at it and if they look at it, they're going to be saved. 
And you think, what a crazy thing to do. And you can imagine how crazy it sounded. You know, the snakes are everywhere. I mean, you're, everywhere you go, there are these venomous snakes, and people are, are being bitten, and they're dying, and you get bit by one of these things, and you know you're going to die. What are you going to do? You're going to do the old John Wayne thing, a big X, and start sucking the, the venom out. And all you've done is harm yourself more because you're going to die. You can't save yourself. You can't say, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a God-ordained, human-biting, killing-machine snake. The only thing that you can do is to repent and look at what He told you to look at. Trust Him to bring healing to you. And that's what happened. To look at what God has lifted up. And Jesus tells Nicodemus, you know, it doesn't matter what your pedigree is, your DNA, your moral structure, the good standing you have in society. You can't trust these things to save you. You have to look at the one that God lifts up on the cross, who is the Son of Man. And then he says, everyone who believes, that is, trusts, may have eternal life in him. One of the great things about being a modern father is that you get to see your children being born. I got to see Jessica be born. I got to see Jordan being born. And you know what those two kids had in common? They weren't very happy when they came out. <laughs> but one of the things that also uh, strikes me about all of this, this, uh, this world of epidurals that we live in and the delivery units, which I'm all for, I, I, I think they're beautiful, and I, I'm glad that, that, that we have them, but we are removed quite a bit from, from Jesus' day. In, in Jesus' day, no one saw the light of day unless you were loved by someone who would risk their life for yours. In those days, and pretty much throughout all of history to this modern time, and even in some parts of the world, of this modern world, it's the same. There was, there's tremendous pain and there's tremendous suffering when it comes to giving birth to a child. A mom puts her life on the line at birth. And in the time of Jesus, in times before that, in times after that, there were lots of babies that were born through the death of a mother. They got their, their life from, from the pain and the suffering of a mother. We go from John chapter 3 to John chapter 16. And Jesus says, you know, my time, my hour has come, which is, uh, is reference to his death on a cross. He says, my hour has come. And then he says, like, like a mother who, who suffers with, with the pain and, 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 and the, the, the struggle of, of the pain at labor, I feel that. But just as uh, that grief and that pain disappears when this new life is born into the world, so great will be my joy at seeing people born again into the kingdom of God. And what Jesus is saying is that like a woman who suffers pain at birth but sees a new child, and is filled with joy. So He, through that pain of, of, of having to suffer for our sins and to die for our sins, 
gladly goes through it for the greatness of the joy of seeing a new life born into the world, into the kingdom of God the Father. I don't know if we really profile people when it comes to being born again. But you know, I can't think of, of, of a better way to live and, and a better message to speak than that which, which draws people to a place where being curious about life and being curious about God, they begin to discover that, that regardless of how well or how poorly they have lived their life, there's a place for them as a child of God. That regardless of how successful they are or how much of a failure and how many failures they have experienced in this life, that there is a way for them to have God implant a new life in them through being born again, being born through faith in Christ and trusting in Him. And God's Spirit put in their, in, in, in their life in such a way that it's new and great and powerful. With blessings untold. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. And what we do at this time is offer an invitation to anyone who's, who's, who's never been born again. This is the morning to do it. The, the, the baptistry is ready. We are ready to hear your confession that Jesus is Lord and, and, and to witness your repentance, your choosing of God as, as your God and Jesus as your Lord and Master and the King of your life and to be baptized having your sins washed away because you're participating in that death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And God puts His Spirit in you and your sins are forgiven and you live this new life, not always an easy life and not always a, a, a life that is immune from pain, but it is a life that is blessed with joy and with peace and with strength and with fellowship and the knowledge of the significance that God gives each of us as His children. Or maybe you're just struggling some. I, I don't know. I know that whenever we get into a group this size, there are always people that are struggling with things. It's, it's, it's time for us to pray to God and, and to ask for God to bless us or, or to, to give our life to God in such a way that we are born again through baptism and confession. The time is now. And we want you to come down and to talk to these spiritual shepherds that we'll have right down here at the front at my feet as we stand and all of us praise God together. Let's stand in worship. I once was lost in sin, but Jesus...